You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Good morning. Oh, nice. Hey, let's participate the whole time. Um, my name is Carla Gerard, and I am just honored and humbled to be able to teach the Word of God this morning. I am the Director of Outreach and Missions here at InFocus Church, and I come today hopefully to challenge you with God's Word and also to bring an encouragement to you about the faithfulness of God. I mean, the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings are planned long before the month we even sing them and before the messages are necessarily even sought out from the Spirit and God has just set us up this morning to put himself on display in regards to his faithfulness because he's faithful even when we're faithless, right? Yeah, he is. So we're in a sermon series about miracles out of the book of John. We're looking at seven of his miracles. Today we're looking at the third one. And the coolest thing is that every nation churches all over the world in our global family are teaching these messages. So there's a synergy around the globe in our spiritual family in regards to who Jesus is, in regards to what he does for us, and in regards to the glory that he brings his name um, here on earth. So this morning is going to be no different. We're going to take a look at the book of John, remind us ourselves, as Brent did last week, in such an awesome, challenging message, that we are to have courageous faith, right? So before I get started, I just wanted, I bet if I took a poll this morning in the room, that if I were to ask you, have you ever been in a situation to where what you'd imagined or what you'd hoped for was a little bit different than the reality of what was taking place? Let's say like a vacation, that what you hope for, and even in the middle of the vacation, if you might be living in denial, um, what you hope for is not actually what happens on the vacation, especially when you take a look back at how the vacation was. It might not have gone as peaceful as you wanted it to. Or, in the more practical way for me, I might think that my laundry room or my house is going to look a certain way, kind of like Instagram versus reality. We have a picture of that this morning. And we think it's going to look like this picture over here, but really we're living here with the 73 loads of laundry that, that might be clean right there in my house. It might be clean, but they haven't been folded and they're seated if you will, next to about 10 feet away from the 32 loads of laundry that have been folded and washed, but they need to be put up. So I think I'm living in this reality, but I'm really living in this reality. And this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, John 5, at a story that I know I've heard quite often in my life. I grew up in church, and I bet if you've heard it before, it may have been presented or you might have perceived the story a certain way in your mind, but I would propose this morning that we may have been taught this story just a little bit out of focus, that what's really going on in the scripture isn't what we might perceive. Because what I learn, I'm learning these days, is the more I read the word and the more I learn about God, the more I realize that I have a lot more to learn. And the more I realize that I'm quite different from God and there's a long road ahead of me to live in the holiness factor that he's called me to live in. So if you'll turn in your Bible this morning to John 5, we're going to unpack the scripture 
together. We're going to observe the text, if you will. Now, you know, or if you do, do know me, um, I love to teach the Bible. If you don't know me, you're going to see this morning that I really love to teach. Maybe sometimes I'll get into preaching, but I really, really love to teach. So we're going to unpack this passage chunk by chunk, and we're going to observe the text and then apply it to our own lives. So if you'll take a look at John 5, starting in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. Now, I don't know about you, I mean, I'm a good bit older than 38 years old, but if I had been disabled for 38 years, that would be the majority of my life that I have been disabled. So we're gonna take a look at this text and observe it. What do we see as I just read that scripture? First, we see that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is the account after the one that Brent preached last week. So he's just healed the official son. Courageous faith has been put on display. And now Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. There's a festival going on. And whichever festival it is, is not significant to the account. What might be significant, but not the total focus of my sermon this morning, is that Jesus comes in at the sheep gate. The significance would be a foreshadowing of Jesus being the Lamb of God. That he is going to one day enter this city willingly to lay down his life for his kids, for his children. He also tells us in the word that he is the good shepherd and that his sheep know his voice. So there's potentially a significance that he enters Jerusalem by the sheep gate. We also see that Jesus doesn't go right to the temple when he enters the city of Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to the pool of Bethesda. So here's where I believe potentially we might have seen this story different throughout our life. This story has been uh, portrayed in many Christian uh, TV programs or movies. I actually just watched an excerpt from the Chosen series last night on this particular passage. It's also in lots of kids' songs, kids' crafts. But here's what I think that we might picture sometimes, that when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda, that it's like this shiny, marble, very clean, like, bathhouse. And that royalty, you know, might kick back and be fed by grapes. I mean, fed by their servants. Well, if grapes were feeding them, that would be a miracle. But they're being fed grapes by their servants. But instead, that's not what's going on. The pool of Bethesda was two pools, an upper pool and a lower pool, if you will. One was original, one had been built later on in these modern times. And there were four colonnades that overlooked the pools and one colonnade, which are like suspend, or, or, uh, porches that are held up by, pil- by pillars that we might think are shiny, but they weren't necessarily. They're probably made out of uh, even wood, some of them. And there's a porch going through the middle of each of these pools. Now, what we did find, ar- find around these pools in the scripture is that there are the lame, the blind, and the disabled. So what's surrounding this pool is a lot of people who might feel overlooked, marginalized, they've lived a lot of their life in pain. It would probably be quite oppressive around this pool as there are people rotting under the weight of comparison and hopelessness. 
There might have been a lot of competition going on because here's what happened at these pools. The waters would stir up probably from a spring um, from underneath the ground, but the superstition that surrounded the pool was that when the waters bubbled, that an angel's wings were stirring up the water, and the first person to get in the pool would be healed. So can you imagine if you were disabled? You wouldn't be able to get to the water, right? You'd have to have somebody put you in the water. Or even if you could crawl on your elbows, it would take you a lot longer to get to the pool than someone who might just be blind but has the use of their legs. I think there would be a lot of noise, of agony. I think it would smell not so good, not so wonderful. So when you looked upon it, you would hopefully be moved to compassion, but potentially might be moved to disgust. And that's what's going on around these pools. So the franticness and the desperation that might have been there. Have you ever talked to someone who's frantic? I've received some phone calls from some friends who were frantic and you can't even complete, they can't even complete a sentence. It's like you're having to read their mind. Carla, can you, I need you, uh, can you, uh, where are you? I'm coming to you right now. That's what it's like when someone is frantic or desperate. Or what about hopeless, just giving up? I'm not gonna get there anyway. I'm just gonna rot and die right here. So verse five tells us that there's a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know that he's been laying by the pool for 38 years, but here's what we do know. The life expectancy during that time was shorter than 38 years. So therefore, this man has been there, has been paralyzed for the majority of his life. Another observation is that in other texts, it will tell us if a particular ailment is congenital, which means it came from birth, but that's not mentioned in this text. So the implication is that this man is in his situation because it is a consequence of his actions or a consequence of someone else's actions. But the implication and the reasonable thing that we can assume is that he's there as a result of sin. So he's also got that weight and that guilt on his shoulders. So picture it, smell it, hear it, see it in your mind's eye what's really going on. That's the reality of the pool of Bethesda. Now let's look at verse six together and observe that part of the scripture. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So what do we see in this chunk of the scripture? I wanna take a look at who Jesus is. Jesus sees the man and he approaches the individual, but if we stepped back and looked at the whole scene, it would be as if I described earlier, Jesus would have seen that. But as we know about our Lord, he begins to take a very focused look at this man. He picks him out, he pursues him, and he approaches him. The scripture tells us that Jesus recognizes that he's been there a long time. That Jesus recognizes that he's been in this state for a long time. And it seems that Jesus asks a very obvious question. Do you wanna get well? Do you wanna get well? But Jesus doesn't ask him if if he wants to get healed. Most translations have the word well because that is the implication from the original language. Do you want to get well? 
The man clearly doesn't know who Jesus is because he calls him sir. He doesn't call him by name. And then the man answers Jesus, not with yes, not with no. He answers him with excuses. Well, I mean, I can't get to the water. I can't get down there because someone jumps in front of me. And what he doesn't say, but we can assume, is that he's saying, I do believe this water can heal me. Of course I want to get well. That's why I'm laying here. But I can't get down there. And he's just like us because we love excuses, right? I'm going to unpack some of our excuses in a little bit. But right now, I just want to say that we love to blame other people. We love to heap blame on others and we love to heap blame on ourselves. We love to heap shame on other people and we also love to heap shame on ourselves. We're really, really good at it. I'm not so sure we really love it, but we're just masters of it. But then Jesus gives three commands and it says that instantly those commands are performed. And I wanna propose this morning that it would have taken some kind of faith for that man to believe Jesus. I mean, he's been this way for 38 years and the desperation that must have been in his soul of whether he was indignant about being asked, do you wanna get well? Or he was like, well, I've tried everything else. I mean, I can just just try what this man is, is telling me to do. And he gets up, picks up his mat, and he walks. And then John takes what is seeming, seemingly a left turn, left turn. So he goes to the account, and then he says, and this was the Sabbath. But why would that be important? Why is that important to this account? Let's read starting in verse 9. Actually, verse 10. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So what's going on? Rest assured that this man would have been known by the Jewish leaders. They would have made sure that he didn't get near the temple. Because when you had an ailment back in these times, you couldn't approach the things of God. You couldn't be a part of the things that were holy. There were some stringent laws around certain diseases for sure that that kept the person in shame and kept the person outside of the camp, if you will. And these Jewish leaders would have known this individual. And here he was walking. Now, I don't know if you've known anyone that's ever had their legs, like even just in a cast for four to six weeks, but I do. Just recently, I have a little guy, a little friend of mine who was in a cast for six weeks, and when he got the cast taken off, it wasn't like all of a sudden he just jumped up and he started walking and running like normal. His muscles are atrophied, his joint is weak and wonky in his hip, and you still see the result of wearing a cast for just six weeks. Now, this man has been laying there for 38 years. So the fact that he's standing up walking should have been something that was noticed first, right? Something that was celebrated, something that was questioned. But instead, the religious leaders say, why are you carrying your mat? Who told you that you could carry your mat? So instead of celebrating the miracle, religion and legalism has them in a place of pointing out the rules that are much less important than the individual that's standing in front of them. I would propose that we do that a lot as well that we're more concerned about rules and following things that seemingly make us comfortable 
but yet they don't. They keep us bound up. So the legalism and rule following of the, of the religious leaders, of these Jewish leaders, kept them from being empathetic about the man that was in front of them. It kept them far away from the people that they were supposed to love and even more far from the savior of their souls. We can reasonably assume that the paralytic might have been disappointed that they weren't looking at the miracle. And with his confession of healing, although he still doesn't know who Jesus is, he has run straight into the healer of his soul. And Jesus had slipped away, not because he was scared of the religious leaders, but because he was not gonna make a spectacle of what had gone on. He had pursued the man individually for a reason. He didn't just heal the whole crowd and all of a sudden things were in an uproar. He always goes after the one. So what do these passages show us about Jesus? Even though the man didn't know who Jesus was, I think we can observe some things about Jesus. Number one, that he's powerful. That with a word spoken, he healed the man and delivered him from a lifetime of torment. Just as we see in the Genesis account that God creates with a word spoken, that from the mouth of God, when he says something, it is going to take place. That can be our confidence that we just sang about, that he is always faithful to what he says. And in this case, we can see that coming through Jesus. We can also see, number two, that Jesus is compassionate. It says in the scripture that he saw that the man had been there a long while. He didn't like march into Jerusalem and go right to the temple as he was a teacher of the word. He was recognized as a teacher, but instead he goes by this place of pain. Bethesda means house of mercy in Aramaic. So Jesus, the mercy giver, walks into Jerusalem and goes to the place where he is going to be compassionate that even when he's not recognized, he's compassionate. Even when he's not loved or honored, he's compassionate. And we see his compassion toward this man in this account. And number three, that God is sovereign. Jesus is God, God is sovereign. Which means that he knows the end from the beginning. He pursues those who are his and he makes them well. I'm gonna unpack in a few minutes what that means, that it was more than just healing of this guy's earthly body, that he is sovereign to know who are his. He always pursues the one. He always calls out the remnant in the middle of a crowd, and that is the sovereignty of our God. So Jesus is powerful, compassionate, and sovereign. Jesus is willing to grant us mercy before we know him, and that should be encouraging to us today. As I mentioned, Bethesda means a house of mercy. And this man on the mat had taken up residence next to a place that he thought was gonna bring him mercy. But little did he know that he was gonna get a full dose of mercy, not only for his body, but for his soul on this day. So I would ask you the same question that Jesus asked this man, and this is how this applies to us. Do you want to get well? Do you wanna get well in your own life? Like I want us to take some real serious inventory this morning, as if we are, yes, here corporately, but also individually. Do you wanna get well from the things that plague you, from the things that ail you, from the things you think are unseen, 
But as we see in the passage, Jesus goes beyond. And he sees beyond what our words are saying and he looks at our heart. Do you want to get well? Now you may want to respond in the way that I presented earlier that the paralytic may have responded with having an indignant response, which is, well, of course I wanna get well. How can you even ask me that? I've been in pain for the majority of my life. I don't wanna live like this. I don't wanna have to deal with these things anymore. I wanna walk around like everybody else and be able to go to the temple and be able to do this, that, or the other and have friends and not be ostracized. Of course I want to get well. Or it may be out of hopelessness, the man in tears said, Yes, I want to get well. I've tried everything. I've done all I know to do. And you know, as a parent, if I were to ask my kid a question and they answer with excuses, I'm probably in my sinfulness going to go, that is not what I asked you. What I asked you was this. And when the excuses came at Jesus from this man, it's as if Jesus went, Yes, of course I know you want to get well, but do you want to get well? I didn't ask you to tell me about the excuses and why you're not. I want to know, do you want to get well? Because you see, we metaphorically lay by our own healing pools, waiting for the water to stir, when the answer for our healing and deliverance is standing right in front of us. We ignore or possibly give a light nod to the healer himself, yet we choose to stay by what is familiar, hoping for our turn to come up to get in the water. What healing pools are you crawling to? What healing pools are you laying by? What healing pools do you have your hope in today? Jesus is not an add-in, and he is not a partner in healing. He is the healer. So I ask you, what healing pools are you going to today? Do you numb your pain with a substance? Do you keep the bar in your house stocked with the goods so that you can get a little relaxation and liquid peace after a hard day at work or in a hard season? Do you run to the healing pool of working hard and doing good so that others look on the outside and see that everything is seemingly all put together but when you're really dying on the inside. Is your healing pool putting your hope in a system or a regimen that you think is gonna deliver you from whatever pain or set you up to be the most healthy or the most whole because this is now the latest healing pool that people are running to? Do you chase the American dream so that you yourself are building, building your own healing pool with money, goods, and stuff that's all going to burn one day anyway? What is your healing pool? Do you get degree upon degree or put your trust and faith in the education system and hoping that you can just get one more rung up that ladder? Do you spend hours in therapy without doing any of the actual work that takes place between you and Jesus outside of those office hours? Do you have your hope in this nation or in a political party? Do you wade in the waters of constant stimulation and access through social media or Netflix or whatever other trash comes at your eyes? 
I hear a lot of people saying that they want to walk in freedom, that they want to be healed and whole, that they want to live for Jesus, but the healing pools that they run to don't look at all like the things of God. So I ask you today, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? As I said earlier, the excuses, so let me just throw these out there, like the man saying, well, I can't because someone else has done this. Well, I can't because I've walked myself into this place. I can't, I can't, I can't. Our excuses can be endless. I'm too young or I'm too old. I don't have enough time or I'm bored with too much time on my hands. No one around me sees me or likes me. Everyone is too busy. It's my boss's fault. It's the church's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my ex's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my parents' fault. Our excuses are endless. I'm too hot, too tired, too irritated. Or in the South, the weather's too bad. I can't get it done today. The list goes on and on and on. Now listen, excuses expose us. They expose our hearts and our insecurities. And when stirred up, we run to those healing pools I just went through and we find ourselves stirred up even more. And I beseech you this morning, do not stir up a healing pool of your own making or place your hope in a healing pool that starts to stir and seduces you away from the truth. Be stirred up by the Holy Spirit and the things of God. Be stirred up by conviction and true repentance. Be stirred up by the Savior. So I ask you again, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Nothing and no one will satisfy like Jesus. And as horrible as 38 years of being paralyzed would have been, that's actually not this man's greatest sickness or greatest issue. His greatest sickness was that he was sick in his soul from sin. He was sin sick. Let's look at verse 14 says this, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They still didn't recognize Jesus. They still were more concerned about the Sabbath and the law. And thus began the persecution of our Savior. Because no one that lives in legalism will recognize Jesus. They'll stay in their own healing pool and cesspool of rule following. But if you notice in this passage where Jesus finds the man, he finds him in the temple. Because his healing of the man now positioned this man to be able to go to the temple. Because anytime Jesus healed, anytime Jesus healed in the accounts that we read in the scripture, it was always so that the individual could be closer to the Father. It always removed the barrier that kept the individual from the Father. I wanna to speak to what it meant when Jesus said in that last scripture in verse 14, see that you are well. In the original language, see that you are well does not mean just that you are physically well. When Jesus said in the other, even other accounts in the gospel, see that you are well, it was speaking to the person's soul, that they were now forgiven, 
that their soul was now rescued and redeemed and now found to have eternal security. So it wasn't the penultimate importance that he was healed in his body, although that is a result of God's mercy. What was most important was that now he would spend eternity with his Savior, even before he recognized who Jesus was. It's a whole sermon within itself. Now the implication here is that this man found himself in his physical state because of his sin, and his ailment, if you will, was a result of his sin. Now look, I wanna make this point quickly that not every sickness is a result of sin, and not every difficult circumstance is a result of sin, but some are. And in one commentary I read, the commentator just proposed that even 10 minutes spent in the presence of God with a heart surrendered to him to say, search me and try me, as the psalmist says, will reasonably put that person in self-reflection that will lead them to humility of knowing that they are not God, that God has a better plan, and that repentance and humility should be the response from being in the presence of God. That I surrender once again to you, God, make me whole and holy, just like you. Spirit, lead me so that I can live a life that brings glory to God, because if left to ourselves, we will not. So that's an important point to make. Not always, but sometimes we are in a situation because of our sin, even in our physical body, and it would do us good to submit and surrender ourselves before the Father and say, God, show me. And that we would with boldness and courage that comes from the Father say, I repent. I'm sorry that I said this. I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry that when I partook of this activity that it led to this consequence and now I'm in this state. God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me so that my soul can be made whole? Because I know that even if I remain in this, it's most important that my soul is found clean before you. For this account in John, we see the miracle of deliverance. Jesus is healing this man, delivered him from his disease, but as I said, his soul has been made well. We see Jesus say this in Luke 7 and in Luke 8 to one woman caught in adultery, to one woman who had been sick for years and years and years, and he says to them, your faith has made you well. We know that in Ephesians 2, it says to, that we are saved by grace through faith. There is a component of faith that I believe we see in the account in John 5 as well. That when asked, do you want to be well, there must have been, even if fearful, some type of courageous faith that welled up in this man's soul that said, he told me to get up, to pick up my mat and walk, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to get up, I'm going to pick up my mat, and I'm going to walk. We see that through the accounts of Jesus because God is sovereign, as I said earlier. He is compassionate, as I said earlier, and he is powerful. He can heal us, and he will. There is one main point from today's message, one thing that I want you to remember, that Jesus' intention in our healing is always for holiness. It's always for holiness. It's not just that we then stand up on legs that haven't walked in 38 years, if you will. It's that he wants us to be holy. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to live a life that brings glory to the Father. And as Brent mentioned last week, Jesus doesn't mind being used. I was picturing some people I know in my life, or even myself, if I reflect in my own life, that Jesus issues a healing 
And because he knows the end from the beginning and is sovereign, he knows how the person's going to walk it out. But the hope is that courageous faith will intersect with the sovereign Savior and the result will be a life that's holy and brings glory to him. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yes. But even when it doesn't, even when it doesn't, it's not like Jesus just goes, well, you know what? You didn't walk it out in holiness, so I'm gonna take that healing back from you. No, he just moves on to the next person and presents himself again as the powerful, sovereign, compassionate Lamb of God and issues healing of the soul that might result in the deliverance of, of the physical body. Jesus' final words to the man to do not sin or something else worse might happen is not a condemnation. It's not a condemnation. His charge to not sin is out of compassion because he knows that we are the most whole when we are living pure lives before the Father. He knows that we are restless until we rest in him. And he knows that that the damage and torment of a life of sin can bring an individual down. We weren't meant to live in sin. We're meant to live in surrender to the Father. That's why Jesus died. His sacrifice paid what was required for our death penalty sentence to be absolved. His sacrifice paid the penalty of our sin. And as wonderful as earthly healing is, eternal security is better. My mom died a little over 11 years ago and she struggled intensely with a really cruel form of cancer. It was awful. It was a roller coaster ride up and down My mom knew Jesus. I traveled weekly to see her. Um, I grew up in Atlanta and she was there. And I would sit with her in the hospital, at home, her treatments, whatever was going on. Me, my sister, my dad were with her. There were times where she was out of her mind on pain meds. And we would sit there knowing that there was an eternal security, that she was going to be with Jesus. Her hope never wavered. Listen, I believed that God could heal my mom's earthly body. I still believe that God can heal. I still do. But when mom lost her battle with cancer and she went on to glory, I had been with her that morning. I drove back here to Augusta to be at a ladies' event. And when I got to the ladies' event, my dad called me and said, I think you need to come back. So I got back in the car with one of my best friends at the time and we drove back to Atlanta and I didn't make it to the hospital before my mom died, but I had her on speakerphone and as she labored to breathe and all of her best friends and my dad were surrounding her, I said to my mom, mom, you have run your race, you have kept the faith and you have helped me see Jesus. So run to him, mom, it's your time to rest. It's your time not to give up, but just to lean back into him. She died before I got to the hospital, but I'll tell you what happened that night in my soul as I laid there in the bed inside the house that now was very obviously missing my mom. Is there was an envy in my heart that she was before the Savior, that she was with the one who had given her strength to endure eight years of brutal cancer. And although I know that I would have loved for her to have been healed on this side of heaven, I know that the ultimate healing had taken place in my mom's soul years before when she was young so that she had been made well, so that she would be made well forever. 
So I stand here as someone who still believes in healing. But I'm telling you that the most important healing is the yes to the question, do you want to be made well? So as we reflect today, I'll ask you again, do you want to be made well? Are you tired of running from healing pool to healing pool? Aren't you tired of waiting for those waters to stir? The only waiting that we are supposed to do while we're here is not to wait by a healing pool, but is to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Savior of our souls. He will issue our healing and provide deliverance out of his power, compassion, and sovereignty. So as we get ready to worship, and I don't want anybody to leave, I want you to see the worship always as an extension of the word, as a time for you to be with the Lord, to reflect on what you've been taught from the holy word of God. I implore you today to do some surrender work and ask God to search you and try you. And when he reveals things to you, I implore you, me, to stop sinning, to stop making excuses, to stop living lives of idolatry, to stop putting our hope in the things of this world, to stop blaming others for your circumstances, and to stop being a hypocrite. And I implore you today to keep on or start self-introspection on a daily basis and admit where you are falling short. I implore you to keep on or start building your life around Jesus and his ways, to keep on or start pushing into the relationships that God has for you, to keep on or start loving each other enough to call each other out, to keep on or start studying the Bible deeper than you ever have, to keep on or start living the life of a disciple, to really, really start living the life of a disciple to keep on or start every day, every hour, every moment by waiting on the Lord. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.